0: Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. So last week we started a summer in Rome, which is our 13-week sermon series in the Book of Romans that I hope will be almost as good as a vacation to the real place, but time will tell. And we set the stage for the Book of Romans by focusing primarily on the man who wrote it, that is the Apostle Paul. This one-time notorious persecutor of Christians Ended up writing one of the most beloved letters of the entire New Testament because God gave him a new identity, a new master, a new mission, and a new message. Paul is now a slave of Christ on mission to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Jesus' name among all the nations. And Paul's message runs straight through the city of Rome. Now, Paul's message is the gospel, the good news. Of Jesus Christ. In just the 17 verses that we read last week, Paul used the word gospel four separate times. Good news, good news, good news, good news. Now, what makes this repetition so necessary? What makes this good news so good? Well, Paul says it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He says that those who believe this gospel are declared righteous by God. But you might be thinking, hold on a minute, salvation? I mean, that sounds very churchy. And what do I really need to be saved from to begin with? And declared righteous by God, that sounds pretty religious. What's that about? I mean, don't get me wrong, I know I'm not perfect, but I wouldn't call myself unrighteous either. Well, Paul's message is that we do need to be saved. And we do need God to graciously declare us to be righteous because we are sinners, which is the primary point of Paul's text today. So open up to Romans chapter one, verse 18. Feel free to use our Bibles if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we go further, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together, even though it's a little cloudy and a little rainy. Father, in a way that kind of sums up this text. Uh, this portion of Romans is a little cloudy and a little dark and a little dreary, but it's still incredibly important for us to understand the good news that you have announced. Father, thank you that this good news runs through your son, Jesus Christ that we have the privilege and the joy and the opportunity to remember your son, Jesus Christ, each week as we take communion, as we sing, as we pray, as we open your word. Thank you that through the body and blood of Christ, we are reconciled to you. Thank you for your grace. And Father, be with us as we read your word this morning. Again, a tough text, but I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts and minds and eyes that are open to what your word and your spirit have to say. We love you. We glorify you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to read the entire text, and then we'll start to study it together. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So we're going to break down the text we just read into four major sections. So keep your finger in your Bible as we go. That way you can look back at them periodically. The first section is verse 18, and I'm calling that who we are. Section 2 is verses 19 through 23, what we've done. Section 3 is verses 24 through 31, what God has done. And then section 4 is verse 32, what we deserve. So we're going to look at each of these sections of scripture and discuss what we're taught and what it might mean for us today. And then of course, don't worry. We're not going to sidestep or avoid the controversial parts. We will spend time talking about that as well. So starting in verse 18, section 1, who we are. So last week we read that the righteousness of God is revealed in the good news of Jesus Christ. But then this week, one or two verses later, Paul now says that the wrath of God, is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, wrath doesn't exactly sound like good news, does it? Well, that's because it's not. Wrath is bad news. Now, many people, and even many Christians, instantly recoil at the thought of God having any wrath at all. We falsely assume that a God who is loving can't possibly have wrath. These two things can't coexist, can they? Or we wrongly assume that God's wrath is like our wrath, at times unfair, inappropriate, out of proportion, or blind and uncontrolled. But God's wrath is not like our wrath, because God is not like us in the most glorious ways. And we may even heretically assume that while God may have been wrathful once upon a time in the Old Testament. By the time we get to the New Testament, God has grown out of that. God has evolved. That's primitive. That's barbaric. God's not like that anymore, right? We take the word wrath out of hymns, out of songs, out of sermons, out of Bible studies, out of translations, because it makes us squirm. However, if God is holy, which he is, There are some things he simply cannot tolerate. If God is holy, which he is, there are some things he must punish. If God is holy, which he is, there are some things that are so clearly out of bounds that they invite his wrath, and rightfully so. As one theologian puts it, as long as God is God, a.k.a. forever, As long as God is God, he cannot behold with indifference that his creation is destroyed and his holy will trodden underfoot. Therefore, he meets sin with his mighty and annihilating reaction, also known as wrath. But it's also crucial to note that God's wrath is being specifically revealed, specifically targeted against mankind, against us. Now, Paul is probably speaking primarily to Gentiles in Romans 1, 18 through 32, though the Jews will get their shellacking in the coming chapters. But ultimately, ungodliness and unrighteousness, sin, it is a universal problem. All mankind... Jew and Gentile, male and female, young and old, rich and poor, slave and free, black, white, past, present, future, everything in between, we are all guilty. We are all sinners and we are all worthy of God's wrath. That's who we are, according to Paul in Romans chapter one, verse 18. But now let's go to section 2, verses 19 through 23, and find out what we've done. I mean, why are we worthy of God's wrath? What exactly did we get wrong to deserve this? Well, Paul says it's not just that we're ungodly. It's not just that we're unrighteous. He takes it a step further and says that we, through our unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. In other words ungodliness and unrighteousness isn't something we just stumble into on accident. Sinful mankind, every single one of us, we are all guilty of actively and intentionally rejecting the truth about God. And Paul gets to this point by arguing that there are some things that every single human being can conclude about God by using the minds he has given us, To observe the world that he's created. Theologically, this idea is known as general revelation. General revelation. It's the idea that God has revealed a great deal about himself to all mankind through his creation. And that means that we can all come to some general understanding of who God is and what he expects of us by looking at the world that he's made. That's why we quoted earlier in the service Psalm 19, specifically verses 1 and 2. It gets at the idea of general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. The psalmist's argument is that you can look at the heavens. You can look at the earth and learn something about God. Paul says you can look at creation and you can learn about his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. So Paul's arguing that we know enough about who God is. We know enough about what God expects of us that we ought to live in some basic accordance with God's intentions, God's desires, and God's design. And yet, here's what we've done Or haven't done. We haven't lived in accordance with God's intentions. God's desires. God's design. Instead of submitting to the obvious truth. Of who God is and what he expects of us. We have suppressed that truth. And pursued ungodliness and unrighteousness instead. We have become fools. Our minds are futile. Our hearts have been darkened. We've exchanged the glory of the God who created everything for trivial and unclean things that he made. Instead of subduing things in creation the way Adam and Eve were commanded to, mankind has worshipped them. That's what we've done. That's who we are. That's why we deserve God's wrath. Now, you might be wondering, how did things go so wrong? I mean, how did we get to this point? Why is it that we've done what we've done? Well, Paul will talk about that more in Romans 5 in a few weeks. But for now, let's just take Paul's word for it, for the sake of argument. Paul says that we are sinners. We have pursued ungodliness and unrighteousness. We knew better than to do this, but we did it anyway. So we are ultimately without excuse. We are worthy of God's wrath. And then we get to verse 24, section 3, what God has done in response. You know, one of the ways that God's wrath has been revealed against sinful mankind right now is that God has given us up to the very sins that invited his wrath in the first place. God giving us up means that he allows us to pursue sin, And the reason that this is a showing of God's wrath is that the worst punishment God can dish out on a sinner is to let the sinner have what they want. I'll say that again. The worst punishment God can dish out on a sinner is to let the sinner have what they want. It is an act of wrath that God would allow us to follow sin as it spirals down to its inevitable and destructive conclusion. It's a showing of God's wrath. One theologian describes this idea of God giving us up to sin as though we're sitting in a boat in the middle of a flowing river of our choosing. We got in the boat. We wanted to go out in the river. God let us go out on the river. And we foolishly want to go further down that river, even though there's a waterfall at the end that will surely kill us. And here's God standing on the shore, holding a rope, preventing us from that destruction. But eventually, God gives us up. God lets go of the rope. And here's the scary thing about that. We want him to let go of the rope. We're begging him to let go of the rope because our foolish minds and our hearts have been darkened. Again, one of the worst things God could ever do to us is give us what we want. One of the Puritans described it like this. There is no wrath like the wrath of being controlled by my own lusts for my own ends. God has given us up. Now, what specifically has God given us up to? Paul goes into the list. He's given us up to the lusts of our hearts, to impurity and dishonoring of our bodies. This mainly refers to the sin of idolatry, worshiping false gods. The psalmist puts it this way in Psalm 135, verses 15 through 18. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. The sin of idolatry has a dehumanizing effect. When you worship an animal, you become no better than an animal. When you worship an image or a statue, you too become rigid and lifeless. When you worship a false god, you too become false. And God has given us up to that. And then Paul says that God has given us up to dishonorable passions. And he illustrates this with the example of homosexual practice, Paul labeling it as contrary to nature. Now, why do you think Paul would use this particular sin as an example? Well, it goes back to his discussion on general revelation. Paul would argue that we can look at our world and discern that the only way mankind continues to exist is through procreation, which cannot naturally occur through two females or two males. He would argue that we can look at our physical bodies, we can look at our anatomies, and figure out that male and female were naturally made for each other. We go together, we fit together, both literally and figuratively. And so Paul would say that anyone who denies this reality is simply suppressing the truth. We ought to know that this isn't how God created us and our world to function. And we will be held accountable for our willful ignorance. Now it's worth noting that Paul's condemnation of homosexual practice is not limited. It's not conditional. It's not in any way exclusive. In other words, Paul is not just condemning homosexual practice when one party consents and the other doesn't. He's not just condemning homosexual practice when the two parties are not faithfully and monogamously committed to each other. Paul is condemning homosexual practice in all its various forms, in all its contexts. There have been many efforts over the years to do theological and biblical gymnastics, to try and soften what this text says but it's not good biblical interpretation. In fact, it's not good history. And if you try to make this text say something in our image, something that we would like, then honestly, we're just doing Scripture an injustice. We're barking up the wrong tree if we expect Scripture to condone that. In that phrase, contrary to nature, the word that Paul uses for nature is physikos, which is where we get our word, physical so paul's argument is that homosexual practice flies in the face of the physical realities the physical design of god's creation it is a dishonorable passion it is a sin and then paul says that god has given sinners up to debased minds that's where he gives that laundry list of sins All manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, hatred of God, insolence, haughtiness, boasting, invention of evil, disobedience to parents, foolishness, faithlessness, heartlessness, and ruthlessness. I think that pretty well covers the gamut, doesn't it? Now, it's worth noting that while Paul does draw some significance to the sin of homosexual practice to make his point, It's not the only sin in this passage. It's not the only sin in this passage. All sin is ungodliness and unrighteousness. All of us are sinners, and all of us have suppressed the truth in one way or another, regardless of whether or not your sin looks exactly like mine. And all sin invites the wrath of God. So we are sinners. We deserve wrath because we have suppressed the truth, and God has given us up to sin. But then we close with verse 32, what exactly it is that we deserve, more specifically and more powerfully. Paul closes by saying, shortly and simply, what we sinners all deserve, and we deserve to die. We've all committed our own horrendous and blasphemous acts of ungodliness and unrighteousness. Paul says that we have all suppressed the truth. And we've even taken it a step further and approved of these sins, encouraged these sins, celebrated these sins, taken pride in these sins in the lives of others. So Paul's overarching point in Romans 1, 18 through 32, is that we have sinned and we have sinned greatly. We deserve every bit of the wrath that God is revealing now and will reveal in eternity. Paul says that we deserve to die. Now, what in the world do we take away from this dark and bleak text? Well, I think there are a few big ideas that we as readers of Scripture are called to embrace. And these will seem bizarre, outdated, and maybe even scary to some of those around us. But they're what scripture teaches. Big idea number one is that we live in a world created by God. We ourselves are created by God. And thus we are called to submit to his rule and to his order. He makes the rules, not us. No matter how advanced we become, no matter how able we become, no matter how much progress we make, no matter how drastically we think we can manipulate ourselves and manipulate our world according to our desires and our abilities and our plans and our brilliance, the truth remains that we are not God. We never have been, and we never will be. And the sooner we learn that, the better off we'll be. Freedom control and autonomy are overrated. Your greatest joy, your greatest purpose is to live as the person God created you to be in the way he created you to live. Like we sang earlier, you and I are made to worship. That's what we're made for. That is our purpose and that is our joy. So we've been created by God. We live in a world created by God and we are called to submit to his rules. But then here's big idea number two. We have all failed in this endeavor. Every single one of us has fallen. We are both the victims of sin and the perpetrators of sin. Every single one of us. Now, of course, this flies in the face of our world's typical attitude that I'm okay, you're okay, everyone's okay. Well, Romans 1, 18 through 32 tells us that we are far from okay. Theologian Doug Moo says, at the center of every person, where the knowledge of God, if it is to have any positive effects, must be embraced, there has settled a darkness. Each and every one of us has that darkness. Each and every one of us has failed in this endeavor to worship and acknowledge and thank and submit to God. And then big idea number three is that there is a God we must answer to for this. You know, you may not believe a word of the Bible. You may not believe a word of anything I've said this morning. But one of these days, you and I are going to be on the same playing field. We will both stand before God and we will both be held accountable. And you know, it's easy for us to read this passage and think of all the other people that we know, that they will be held accountable by God. We can think of all the other people who we describe as ungodly and unrighteous and suppressing the truth and given over to the lust of their hearts and given over to dishonorable passions and possessing debased minds, people deserving wrath, people deserving to die. There's a whole lot of people like that out there, right? Well, it's not just the people out there. Because this passage isn't just about them. This passage is about you. And it's about me. Because we are all sinners. And we will all answer to God one of these days. And when that time comes, in and of ourselves, we will be without excuse. So if you're sitting there feeling hopeless, then that means that we've read the text the way Paul intended it to be read. This sermon is dark and bleak because Romans 1, 18 through 32 is dark and bleak. And I don't enjoy preaching this sermon. I don't get any sort of thrill out of preaching a sermon like this. And I don't fancy myself as some kind of hero for saying things that other people don't want to say. But I preach this sermon because it's here. I preach this text because it's here. And I believe this text. Because it's here. Because it's here, I believe it's true. And if all this stuff is true, then our situation is a disaster. Our situation is a catastrophe. But that's only true if you stay here. That's only true if you isolate Romans 1, 18 through 32 from everything else. And thank God that Romans 1, 18 through 32 is not all of Paul's message because think back to last week think back to when Paul repeatedly talked about the good news the gospel the gospel the gospel the gospel well Romans 1 18 through 32 is here because it's only after understanding the gravity and the weight of our sin that we can even begin to grasp just how good and glorious the gospel really is. It's that God, the only one who could possibly fix this sinful mess that we've gotten ourselves into, has intervened in his son, Jesus Christ. The one who is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is this good news that ungodly and unrighteous sinners, the people of Romans 1, 18 through 32, people like you and people like me, we can be saved. We can be declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. We can be changed from the inside out, filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered to live a new life honoring to God. The life we were always intended to live from the beginning. All thanks to God's grace. So do you leave Romans 1, 18 through 32 feeling bad about yourself? Good. Good that means you've read it the right way. But you should also leave Romans 1, 18 through 32 in complete and utter awe of God. James Moffat says, Only those prepared to acknowledge that they are unworthy can put faith in the giver of grace. Romans 1, 18 through 32 has made it astoundingly clear that we are unworthy. Another says, Paul paints a bleak picture of the plight of humanity so that the glory of God's solution in Christ can be fully appreciated. As we said, Romans 1, 18 through 32 is bleak, but Romans 1, 16 and 17 should be fully appreciated. And Tim Keller says, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. That's what we just read yet at the very same time more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's the good news. So if you're already a Christian and you're hearing this sermon, you're reading this text, don't forget what God has graciously saved you from. Well-deserved wrath and death. And if you're not a believer, I pray that you would place your faith in Christ this morning. In order that you, yes, even you, with all your baggage, with all your flaws, with all your rebellion, with all your sin, no matter what it looks like or how it might differ from mine, that you might be saved. That you might be declared righteous. That you might be more loved and accepted than you would ever dare hope. Again, the righteous will live by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we read last week. And that is good news for people who deserve to die. What we read this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for every Sunday morning. Thank you for every word in scripture. Even the words that hit us like a ton of bricks even the words that shock us and humble us. Father, we're grateful for all of your word. And we're grateful for this word because it reminds us of just how lost, just how rebellious, just how hopeless we really are in and of ourselves. But Father, again, thank you for the good news that you have intervened on behalf of sinners like us. That again, you are not content to let us sit and dwell under the punishment of wrath and death. That you have graciously sent your Son to save sinners like us. And Father, I pray that reading just how fallen we really are would remind us of just how good your grace really is. Father, thank you that you haven't left us this way. Thank you that You're calling people to yourself. You're reconciling people to yourself by your goodness and by your grace. Father, thank you that so many in this room have been reconciled to you by your grace. That we no longer look forward to the day of judgment with fear or with trembling the way we once did. But we look forward to the day of judgment with confidence. Not confidence in ourselves. Not confidence in our righteousness or our goodness. But confidence in your grace. Confidence in your son. Who has purchased us. Saved us. Bought us. With his body and with his blood. And father for those in this room. Who do not believe. I pray that they would leave. With some bad news. But also with some good news. That you are saving sinners. That you do save sinners. Father I pray that. Every one of us would leave this morning having placed our faith in your son, Jesus Christ. Again, Father, we love you. We worship you. We are people who deserve wrath, and yet we can pray to you. We can call you our father. And that's because you're merciful, and you're loving, and you're forgiving, and you're kind. And that's all through your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.